Today's episode is brought to you by the Going Deep Summit, January 27th, 2018 in the historic Kelly Strayhorn Theater. We are going to be gathering for a one-day conference, event, summit, whatever you want to call it, about economic opportunity, career building, and a ton of other exciting topics. I'm excited to also be announcing the first speaker of the event, Zachary Slayback. Zach is a LinkedIn top voice in the field of education, an accomplished entrepreneur, and a multi-time published author. A really smart guy that you're going to learn a ton from. I've already learned a lot from Zach, and I'm excited to be sharing him with you. So make sure you get your tickets. The prices go up October 1st. Once again, for our event, Going Deep Summit, January 27th, 2018. Hope to see you there. Hey, what is up, everybody? Welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I've got an interview for you today that I am particularly excited about. Michael Gibson is the co-founder and partner at 1517 Fund, a venture capital firm based in San Francisco that is focused on unlocking the latent talent and potential that is within the younger population, often the people who should be going to college or seeking their entry-level job, have innovative innovative ideas that are ready to be shared with the world. 1517 is focused on unlocking those, and it is informed by Michael's previous experience in the Teal Fellowship. Peter Teal has been sponsoring people to skip college and start building businesses and getting real-world experience right now. Michael was one of the first members of that program and other philosophical lessons that he has learned along the way to inform how he selects investments to make today. I had a ton of fun talking with Michael. We went for quite a while and shared a lot of big ideas. I think you're going to enjoy it. So here is my conversation with Michael Gibson. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Michael, thank you so much for joining me on Going Deep with Aaron Watson. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Just two episodes ago, we started with a quote from the guest's blog or or their digital presence, and it worked really well. And I'm going to take another swing at it because as I was doing research, I was looking actually at your LinkedIn profile, and I Mm want to read a paragraph from that that I think is going to get the, the wheels spinning for listeners, but also just give you an opportunity to talk about your investing philosophy or maybe your your larger expectation or, or view of where things are going. So I'm going to read that. If the Rust Belt has come to define the hollowed out industries of the Midwest, in the next 10 years, the paper belt will come to define the paper-based industries from Washington, D.C. to Boston. In D.C., they print money, visas, and laws on paper. In Delaware, companies incorporate on paper. In New York, they print media on paper. And in Boston, Harvard, and MIT, they print diplomas on paper. I am dedicated to lighting the paper belt on fire. Let's start off with just talking a little bit more about what that all means. Okay, that's great. Uh, yeah, some hyperbole on my part. Um, yeah, so what am I what am I trying to get at uh, with that flowery re- rhetoric? Um, what I have in mind is that uh, you know I'm a little saddened by uh, just the state of society, and I, I don't think I'm alone in that. You know, there's a lot of angry people out there who feel like 
their lives aren't as good as they could be, or that they're worse off than they were before. Um, and uh, one of the things that I've, I've noticed uh, or that, I, that I, I focus on, I guess, is just you know institutions and whether or not they serve the people uh, in them or who go through them. And that could include universities, but it also includes uh, governance structures. And so one of one of my uh, one of the sources of, of of our problems today, I think, are these old governance structures, and and you know symbolically they're on the East Coast, but but they need not be. And so what one of my uh, aspirations and hopes uh, for the future is that uh, groups of people can create alternatives that are somehow serve people better, or at the very least, differently. In, in, in particular, in the world of technology, you can think of uh, like an old governance structure in any city would be the medallion-based taxicab system, where the government ran a program that was supposed to be a regulatory agency to uh, verify the quality of a cab company and its drivers in order to ensure that the, the customers were safe in the city and that these people knew where to go when they're driving their customers around and all that. Um, that su- that system survived for a very long time. These medallions became very expensive in cities like New York. But then a, a new technology emerged that allowed people to opt out of that system and into something new. So out of the medallion system, instead, people can use uh, Ubers and, and Lyfts. And what did they do? That technology allowed a, a different system, a different regulatory governance system. So instead of the government verifying a company, now you had uh, a company that used reputation via reviews, credit card, so credit based on credit cards that you upload into the system, identity verified through social networks or mobile devices and credit, and then, uh, and then tracking as well with GPS so that everyone knew where they were uh, no matter what. Um, and so that, that is a totally different governance system that people were able to opt into. And, I see, and, and there are a lot of battles that have been fought over the last few years about which one deserves priority or which one can be in service and so on. But in, in my opinion, it seems that the, the choice most customers choose is to be able to opt into the Uber system or the, the Lyft or whatever. Um, and so, and so, so likewise, go through the paper belt, all those examples that, that you just gave. Okay, uh, you know, money. Okay, the government has a, is a fiat provider and overseer, custodian of money. And for a long time, uh, we've trusted them to do a good job at it. But, they, you know, from time to time, they really mess things up. Uh, we trust the Federal Reserve to be the custodian of our monetary system. And, uh, you know, at the very minimum, it seems like they want to do things like erase debts and ease the business cycle and so on by using inflation and other tools uh, to manage that. Okay, great. You know, some people may choose to stay in that. But I'm really excited uh, by the fact that there may emerge alternatives to that over which the Federal Reserve has no control because it's a different system and it's one that doesn't rely on a trusted third party. So Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies, uh, they, they, instead they use the mathematics of cryptography and distributed networks in order to remove the element of trust from, from those monetary regimes. And so, okay, here's another system. If people can opt out of an old system into a new one, and it seems like they're doing better by their own lights in it, then, then I'm all for it. And, and you could go one by one. And then maybe like the last one, 
which is relevant to what I do for a living at fifteen seventeen is the university system where okay there's an old system people apply to colleges uh, they pay lots of money to go there and uh, and right now as a society it seems like we only that that is the only legitimate path for someone who's talented creative looking for a fulfilling or rewarding career and and what we hope to show with with fifteen seventeen with the people we work with and the companies they start and and so on is is that you know that there's another way that you can have a, a an extraordinary uh, fulfilling career without having to obtain a credential from from a great school right so with this idea and and the, I definitely want to dive deeper into what you're doing at 1517 but mm. just to take that analogy that you've made a little bit further I'm in Pittsburgh you know at once it's the steel city it was the heart of midwest economy along with Detroit and a couple other cities. These other kind of centers for these paper industries that you referenced mm. are all kind of being eaten away at or disrupted by what's happening where you live, San Francisco, Silicon Valley. However, one of the, the things with Bitcoin and these other blockchain-based cryptographic companies or ideas or business models is that they are fundamentally decentralized mm. and the potential that that opens up for anyone anywhere to participate in the economy. And just, you know, we're, we're conducting this interview. I'm in Pittsburgh, you're in San Francisco, there's video calls, there's all this other stuff. Uh, Do you, how much do you see these new centers of power coalescing in San Francisco and how much do you see it eventually not really mattering to much of a degree where you're located? Uh, Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are two factors and they're in tension with each other. Um, the first one is that there seem to be, if you look at the broad macroeconomic trend, you see increasing urbanization over the, over, certainly over the last century, but picking up in the last 20 years, 25 years. So people are moving to cities more frequently. And then within the, the, the group of all the cities out there, it appears that the, the biggest are getting bigger. And more, and, and, and the productivity gains are, are increasing in these particular cities. So think New York, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles. And, 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 you know, there's all sorts of debates about why that's the case. Uh, it could just be density leads to greater rates of innovation or wealth creation. Ideas get blended. People bump into each other. You have strong network effects. So, um, you know, there's just like, an abundance of talent, for example, in Silicon Valley or in LA, if you're in the entertainment industry, uh, you're going to bump into people who work in your industry. Ideas about best practices will spread. If you need to make hires, they're easy to hire, uh, especially if you're trying to scale up into something. So like, uh, that's like the broad trend that seems to be pointing towards uh, geography really mattering a, a great deal. And then, and then what you touched on is, is pulling in the other direction. So within technology, you look at the, the top companies, Amazon, Facebook, uh, Google, Apple, maybe Microsoft, uh, and some others. And, uh, and, and they've, they are very, you know, from their predecessors, they're very, they are decentralized. But when compared to what's to come, perhaps they, they look more centralized. And, and so Facebook, for example, is a hoover for all your data about who you are and what you like. Uh, Google 
has all this information about uh, about you derived from your emails and your searches, and they sell it to companies. And so, and so maybe the next wave of of decentralization will 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 attack that that siloing of your of your data and information. I mean, maybe it's the case that, like, for example, you could see a, a social network, a, a decentralized social network emerging, where somehow you you uh, you own your data and you get to choose who to sell it to and so on. And, and Facebook doesn't have that power over you. Uh, and that could be made possible on, on, on blockchain uh, ledgers. Uh, so, you know, we're, it's early days though in, in, in that realm. And it's kind of exciting to see what might emerge uh, and, and, and maybe even uh, compete with some of the big dogs like Facebook and Google. But, but it's going to be hard because those guys are monsters. But, but the, the, uh, the, the, the first factor is certainly true. It seems to be in increasing returns to scale in cities. Uh, but uh, how, how that cr- cross-current works with things like the, the power of, of these giant corporations, I think, is an open question that will certainly be interesting to watch play out over the next five years or so. Yeah, it's tricky. We had a consultant by the name of Christy Woolsey come on, and what she does is she is basically a designer for new office buildings and companies will hire her to come in and say, you know, we we need to build a new office here in the next five years. But with this kind of uncharted future of what work and what professional life will look like, do we need to have an office with a seat for every employee and and Mm. so on and so on down the line? And she has a pretty aggressive take, which is that, you know, offices themselves might become a relic of the past. And I mean, you've seen very large companies following that trend. Maybe not the largest, like you've said, but um, it is happening. And it's it's tricky to to kind of see where things are going. But in, in addition to that, and I think that's, you know, enticing for a lot of people, remote work, the freedom of being tied to a location, um, having economic opportunity wherever it is that mm. you might want to live is really powerful. But another thing that I love about the fifteen seventeen funds philosophy, your view on the world, is that there's also a ton of latent potential to be unlocked in the younger people in our population. And whether that's through entrepreneurship or just apprenticeship, other opportunities that we can give them outside of a traditional uh, high school, college, grad school track uh, mm. is really exciting. So can you can you dive a little bit deeper into the founding thesis that you and your partner Danielle had when starting 1517? Yeah, uh, that's a pretty good start. We Danielle and I used to run the, the Teal Fellowship. So this is Peter Teal's grant program. Uh, gives out about $100,000 $100, to uh, 20, you know, about 20 individuals a year. Um, when, when we were running the program, it was, you know, 19 and under. And the thought was that, uh, because there's this monolithic path that everyone thinks they need to take, there might be, there might be people for whom that's not true. And we might be able to help them out in some fashion, whether it's because they're starting companies or nonprofits or, uh, scientific research of some sort. And we launched that program in 2010, and over five years uh, running the program, we just we, we saw a lot of uh, great companies come out of that. We saw individuals accomplish a lot, um, and and we saw so this there was this opportunity. Like okay, we were giving out grants, uh, making gifts, but uh, we could have been making investments. 
Um, so based on that, Danielle and I came up with the, the, the idea for the fund that if we could raise money from outside capital um, and, and leave our roles at the Teal Foundation, uh, we, could, we could start a, company, a fund devoted to investing in companies you know, started by people off the beaten path, people who never go to college, people who, who go and then take time off or people who drop out. And, and we knew because of all the applications coming into the, into the fellowship that, that the trend was, was picking up steam. These were going to be stronger and stronger tailwinds for us. Uh, so we started 1517 and two, and, you know, two years ago on that theory. Um, and so we've been in business since we were a small fund. We uh, raised $20 million. That sounds like a lot of money to me, but uh, in the world of venture capital, that's pretty small. You know, some of the bigger firms you know, have billions under assets under management, uh, so we're small. But you know, I think we're doing great work, and, and it's based on uh, you know, where our competitive advantage is. I think Silicon Valley sure has uh, an obsession with youth, uh, but I don't think it, it's, it, it, I believe it's a superficial one. Uh, because it's what I see are a lot of venture capitalists who who don't leave uh, Sand Hill Road or who run accelerators and expect people to apply to them. Whereas I believe that there are lots of young people uh, who, for one reason or another, uh, just haven't haven't uh, had the validation, haven't had the support uh, to pursue something that they might be interested in. And so what we hope to do is find them out there, find them on university campuses or at hackathons or other events, and to work with them to develop their, their talents and ideas. And, and if investable opportunities come out of it, uh, that's great for us. And, and hopefully we can work together with those people. I think you perfectly articulated why the profession of venture capitalist sounds sexy to so many people. Basically, I sit in this really cushy office, people come to me with their ideas, and I play kingmaker, more or less, yeah. place my bets. You, you both uh, talked about visiting these different campuses, but also having a smaller fund, and then probably, quite frankly, just being a newer fund, not having the prestige of a Sequoia or a Benchmark or some right. of the other bigger names that you might know. So how does that manifest itself in your like your day-to-day week-to-week operations in having an effective fund? Yeah, I think the, like, as you pointed out, the, the big guys and, and the winners, uh, they get to uh, ride their reputation and, and maybe they do get to sit on Sand Hill Road and, and just take meetings uh, with only the, the good companies at some point. You know, I'm sure, you know, Peter Thiel, at the, he's so wildly successful and he's got such a great track record that, you know, he gets approached a lot, and and the problem for him is then sorting through all the people who, who want his attention. Uh, that's not our problem. Um, you know, I, I I tend to think it's like maybe an analogy for us is uh is we're a little bit like uh like the CIA or something, and we're we're out there looking for intelligence on the future, and uh, you know, the NSA, for example, relies on signal intelligence. That means they're eavesdropping. They're listening to communications and they're trying to pick up on patterns over vast quantities of data and they can sit in their office and and do this from their computers. That's not the intelligence gathering we do. Uh, We have to be out in the field. Uh, We have to develop uh, relationships and understand what people see and what they're working on. And so uh, to that end, yeah, we travel quite a bit, uh, maybe two, three weekends a month during the academic year. We are at hackathons or other uh, events or on university campuses, we'll uh, we'll do office hours with organizations 
of one sort or another. Those could be entrepreneurship groups or or uh, hacker communities, and, and and the whole purpose of it is is really just I mean, uh, first and foremost is to help people out. You know, can I provide advice? Can I we throw resources their way to to help them advance on their projects? Um, but really, also yeah, to help develop their talent and. And then maybe eventually lead to an investment. And so, yeah, we, we, we run a pretty hard schedule during the school year. Summer is a little is easier because the school year is off uh, and people are scattered. But, uh, yeah, we travel quite a bit. And, 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 and we think that's another piece of our competitive advantage besides, besides really focusing on a group of people uh, to invest in. We're also hustling quite a bit. And it just breaks your patterns or if you're in a bubble to some degree, like within Silicon Valley, you're in these different places having, you know, a diverser, a more diverse set of experiences with different types of people that has to help as well. Yeah, we're, to be honest, we're routinely impressed with the, with the Midwest and, or call it like the freshwater region. So all these areas around the Great Lakes, um, a lot of talent we've seen come from uh, Illinois, uh, University of Michigan, and then in Canada, Waterloo, Pittsburgh is another example with CMU there and, uh, and Pitt. You know, the, there are people there who they have, they have access to Silicon Valley and they get the internships and stuff. But but on the other hand, I think they're because they're not at Stanford or MIT, maybe they're not uh, looked at as they don't get as much scrutiny as, as they should from Silicon Valley. Yeah, like Kanye said, the Midwest is young and restless. Um, <laughs> yeah. The, uh, what did some of these deal sizes traditionally look like for you? Like what's a, what's an average investment look like for 1517? Yeah. So we're coming in at the earliest point in the life cycle of a company, which is the riskiest point as well. It makes it very exciting. Anything could happen, but it's also uh, very uncertain. Um, we, we typically invest about $250,000 in a, in a seed round. Often that includes other investors, so maybe the the team is raising on the order of five hundred thousand to a million dollars. That's that's our ideal situation. We've experimented and tried smaller amounts earlier, and and we've also come in for larger amounts later. But but the sweet spot for us is some sort of seed stage deal, and uh, and then we will follow on uh, with the company as it grows. Right. Uh, so you mentioned you're doing these office hours. You're talking to a ton of young aspirational entrepreneurs mm-hmm. as you're traveling the country, visiting these different campuses and the like. When you, you know, someone listening to this, I'm sure has a company of their own and maybe is approaching that initial stage where they might go out and do their first round of fundraising. Right. Um, what advice or perspective could you give just in terms of you know being empathetic to someone on the other side of the table who is in the position of making the investment, um, what advice could you give to someone who is out there looking for it? What type of, are, are there numbers that you like to yeah, see? Sure. Is there a story that you like to hear? Well, we have three main elements in, in our evaluation of any company uh, and team really. And so the, uh, yeah, the three elements are, are the team, which is the most important. The second is the, the opportunity, uh, which I'll explain in, in, in more detail. And then the last would be the current state of the product. Um, the reason that that is the least important is because because we know it's going to change with customer feedback and development. Uh, it's just you see massive pivots and so on. All sorts of things happen where the, where the product changes, and so its current state is no is not necessarily the best indicator of of the likelihood of success. So that means we have to focus on 
the other two. And the team is really the, the biggest thing for us. Uh, that's why we're out there on the road uh, as well and why we want to help people as early as possible because we want to get a sense of their character and who they are and what motivates them. Uh, when we ran the Teal Fellowship, we had an application that people would fill out. We came to hate this as a tool. Uh, applications create uh, generate information, but that information is like fruit. It starts off fresh and gets stale pretty fast. Uh, you know, people could start a company and a month later it, it's blown up or maybe it's doing really well. Uh, maybe they made some connections. You don't know. And, and because you have an application that you received uh, two months ago and no one has updated. So we, we and, and then there are other aspects of someone's character that you can't you can't capture on, a, on an application. So and, and they are really important when it comes to a creative endeavor like starting a company. Those, those characteristics include things like perseverance and grit, uh, hustle, execution, uh, sort of in social intelligence uh, and charisma, the ability to tell stories and persuade people uh, to, to get on, to get co-founders, first employees, to sell to customers and receive feedback, to get investors on board. Those sorts of social skills aren't really something you can get by asking for someone's SAT scores and GPA and what they, you know, what college they went to. So we learned that in the fellowship and, and now we apply that same approach to our investments. So what that means for us is, is I want to get to know you as a person. I want to know what it's like to, to work with you. Often when we're on the road, we'll give out a $1,000 no strings grant to someone who just has an idea and they're, they're trying to turn it into a prototype or, or get some supplies together to start selling something. We'll kick them a thousand bucks. And, and what that does for us is, it, well, and, and, and we'll provide mentorship and advice. And what it does for us is it gives us a sense of what it's like to work for this person. Uh, we'll see how they progress over a month or two. Maybe we've made 37 investments to date, and, and about six or seven of those originated as these $1,000 grants. Uh, those companies are now fully fledged places with like 20 employees and, and uh, you know hundreds of thousands of dollars of revenue coming in. So it's, it's pretty wild for us sometimes to, to con- reflect on how um, these companies started as ideas in, in, in a thousand bucks. But all of that is about uh, evaluating the team. Uh, so my advice to people out there on the road is, yeah, you reach out to me, let's talk, and let's keep in touch and, and let me know how things progress. Uh, the second element when it comes to investment now is, is, is the tricky thing. So we're a venture capital fund, and uh, that means we raised money from outside investors, and they're looking for returns. We're, we're operating on the business model that we will construct a portfolio of startups that we invest in, and most of them are going to fail or break even. And we're going to, that's no way to return money to our investors. And so what we have to do is, is really hope that we have extraordinary successes in, within that portfolio. And, and often the fund will be returned by maybe one or two of those companies. And, and the others are, are sort of okay singles and then some break evens and some failures. What that means whenever we approach an opportunity is that we have to get a sense of, uh, okay, if we're investing $250,000 in this company, maybe that gets us something on the order of like 5% ownership in the company. That means that company, if it's going to return our whole $20 million fund, it's going to have to be an immense success. It's going to have to be you know, a company that's worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in its market cap eventually. 
So when we sell our 5% stake, our, our investors make money. Which means when we're, when we're, looking, we're looking at a company and we, we evaluate it, it's a hard way to predict the future, but we've got to get a sense of, okay, how big of an opportunity is this? Is it something that can return our fund? Because uh, if we can't get a sense of that story, it could just be a great small, uh, what's called a small business. To me, it's an extraordinary achievement to create a business that generates uh, you know, a few million in revenue or that's worth uh, 10 to 50 million in market cap. That's, I, I haven't done that. And I'm really impressed whenever I meet people who have. But uh, the you know, sad thing about our business model is that that's not going to make the money for us. And so sometimes the hard question for us is the team is really strong, but maybe they're working on something that's not in the parlance uh, you know, of the industry that's called venture scalable. Right. And that's an important distinction also. Um, not Not that one is true one way or the other, but that fundraising as a goal in and of itself isn't necessarily it's really never the win if you raise the fund the big round of funding that really just means that you are on a different track to what success might look like yeah but that whatever company you may be starting there's a multitude of different outcomes that could qualify as success yeah and so if you if you do need money to to start your business or scale it there especially at that first stage there's, it, you know, you should think about who you're approaching for money. If you have a rich uncle, if you have uh, friends of the family or friends you know who might be able to write you smaller checks on the order of $20,000 to $50,000, um, those are the types of people you want to approach first uh, because they have a different set of incentives and a different way to make money. I mean, it's extremely risky for them to put their own money into what you're doing, but if they do it and you and you, let's say you do create a, uh, a business that grows from being worth, let's say, $100,000 to, uh, to $5 million, that's quite a return for that angel investor because it's their own money. And, and they'll often have greater advice and, because the ideal angel investor is, is probably someone who's worked in the industry you're operating in before and, and they can really help you out with their Rolodex and advice. And then, and then there are other things too, like crowdfunding and, and, and maybe other things will emerge too with blockchain stuff. You start to see this ICO action. It's looking at a little bit like tulip mania, but on the other hand, it could be uh, an opportunity for people to raise money in a different way. Absolutely. We're, we're very bullish here on the show. We've had a number of uh, blockchain and crypto innovators and, and people playing in that space. It's definitely exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, before we aim towards wrapping up here, Michael, you have spent an extended period of time working with Peter Thiel, both as a principal for Thiel Capital and, as you mentioned, um, in the early stages of the Thiel Fellowship. Working with him, are, are there any particular lessons or takeaways that you have from your extended time working with him that you now apply on a regular basis to your life? Any, any major learnings? Uh, well, Peter's a genius, uh, so it's hard to say, like... <laughs> Uh, it's hard to, to like, you don't want to imitate someone's style of thought because you'll never be able to do it, uh, especially someone as, as extraordinary as he is. But, uh, but one thing I think that I, I learned from him, when, when we, I interviewed for a role at his hedge fund, I didn't plan to have a job in finance. I dropped out of a PhD program in philosophy. I had a stint as a journalist. So, you know, I was, I was doing different things and I, I, I fell into the orbit of some people who worked for Peter and, and only because he was an interesting thinker to me, uh, did I pursue the, the job 
opportunity and it led to an interview with Peter and we just talked philosophy for an hour. We didn't talk about finance or anything else. And, and, you know, from that point onward, one thing I just noticed about him is his dedication to thinking through how, uh, the micro, uh, what sort of stories connect the micro events in the world to the larger macro trends. And, and I think he uses history, philosophy, economics, uh, his, his, his sort of interdisciplinary toolkit to try to understand the world. And, and I really appreciate that. And, and maybe I didn't really, until I started working for him, I, I never thought about how history and philosophy might have something to add to understanding the current landscape of startups and, the, and then how that connects to the drivers of history in, in our current time. And, and that's a challenge. It's really hard. But uh, I always admired the way he, he would... Uh, he would have this interdisciplinary approach to it. Um, you know, one of my favorite days of working for him was, uh, you know, this moment I, I showed up to work one day and I'm, there's this uh, reception room at Teal Capital and, and there's a conference room off from the reception desk. And, and Peter never took meetings in that room. He has his own office in the back and own a small conference room where typically he meets people. So it was odd for me to walk in that day and, and see him inside that conference room with maybe six, seven people who are, they're, they're wearing uh, coats and ties, but not nice enough to be bankers or lawyers. You know, who are these guys? And so, so I asked the reception desk, I was like, who's Peter talking to in there? And, and the women up front, they, they said, I don't know, you know, they're, they're talking about some book. I'm like, okay, what is, I have to know what book they're talking about. So I emailed Peter's assistant and I, uh, I said, Ashley, what the hell are they reading in there? And she says, oh, Peter's with the uh, Straussian scholars. They're discussing chapter seven of City and the Man about Thucydides. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> and so Peter, Peter was in there. I think he was with the, these were all professors. Um, and, and they were discussing Strauss in this book for, I think it was like from 9 a.m. To, to like 2 p.m. or 3 p.m. or so. And, and I've never seen Peter stay in one spot for that long. So uh, he's got a lot of stuff going on. He's got his private family office hedge fund. He's got his venture capital fund. He's got his foundation. He's got so many claims on his time. And yet he took a day, and he does this quite often, where he, he was focusing on uh, Strauss's reading of Thucydides. Okay, wild. And so, uh, you know, I think that's part of his genius and, and what makes him unique as a uh, as an investor is that he, he thinks there's something to be learned from from a topic like that. Yeah, I think stealing ideas from all across the world and bringing them into your specific area of expertise is always a powerful uh, skill and a, a powerful strategy to deploy. Uh, Michael, this has been fantastic. As we aim towards wrapping up, before we ask the last two questions, Last two questions. Was there anything that you were hoping to share today that I didn't didn't give you a chance to? No, I'm happy to talk. I think we covered a lot. Uh, people, any of your listeners can feel free to email us. Uh, our address is info at 1517fund.com. That's info at 1517fund.com. Uh, we have a form on our site. Uh, you know, it sort of just tells us, you can tell us a little bit about yourself. And uh, always happy to chat for maybe 20 minutes or so about what you're working on. Um, and also, you know, this fall we'll be traveling around the hackathons. And if you're in one of those cities or one of those schools, always happy to meet in person as well. 
so people should feel free to reach out. Uh, on the socials, I'm at William underscore Blake on Twitter. That's uh, the poet's handle. I uh, signed up in 2007 when I was a journalist at Tech Review, and I've had that account since. Uh, I, I'm a fan of the poet, but other than that, there's no there's no real uh, story there. But yeah, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. Always happy to engage in conversations there. Fantastic. We'll be sure to link that in the show notes. Going deep with Aaron.com slash podcast is going to be the place to find all of those links. But as we do at the end of every episode, Michael, I like to give my guests the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience. So if you're ready, take it away. Oh, man. Uh, I mean, like more self-serving for, for me, but also I think just as part of the fun. So it's we're uh, we're called 1517. It's 2017. It's the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his theses to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany. So we're going to celebrate that on October 28th. The uh, That'll be in San Francisco. If you email me, uh, you know, we can get you an invite to the event. But what we're doing with that event is Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to a church door because he was upset about some practices in the in the church at the, at the time. The church was selling something called an indulgence. This was a piece of paper. They sold at great cost, telling people it was a way they could save their souls. Likewise, we say universities today are selling a piece of paper, telling people it's the only way they can save their souls. They call it a diploma. You know, we think it was just as silly then as it is now. And so my challenge to everyone out there would be uh, to come up with your version of a thesis, a, a critique or an idea to reform higher education. I, I, you know, you don't have to share it with me. If, if you want to keep it to yourself, that's, that's great. But think about ways you would change uh, education. And then I want you to, play, to post it somewhere in public. I want you to, you know, your version of nailing it to a church door. If you're so bold as to put it on your university administrator's door, go for it. But if you want to just put it up on the coffee house uh, poster board, that's cool too. But write out a sentence, print it out, and, and nail it somewhere. And then uh, tell us what you did when you come see us at our at our event in, on October 28th. I absolutely love that. I, I uh, think that I, you, you already had me with the anniversary of the 90, 95 Theses, but posting in public somewhere and actually putting it out into the world, I think, is, is powerful. Um, one of the most interesting things I wanted to maybe talk to you just for another minute here before I let you off. Yeah. Um, I, I have a similar notion with the university system and the massive amount of debt that it saddles an entire generation with and Mm. the story that we're told, like you were talking about storytelling being so important in raising funding and whatever it may be, but the story that we're told, this is the only pathway to success. And what's really interesting to me, and I'd be curious to hear your perspective on is I can say that despite having a four year degree and, you know, looking back on it and saying, like, I really could have spent that money better. I could have spent that time better. Um, and it's really not the difference maker in my career right now. I attribute that to other things. A mm. lot of people don't get there despite being in very similar positions. It's not like they've gotten the perfect job straight out of school or had every opportunity because of that degree. And what I attribute that to is basically just some cognitive dissonance. I invested all that time. I invested all that money. It had to be worth it. I have to tell myself that it's worth it to kind of deal with that reality. Um, Is that what, do you see that? I don't know how often you come across people who are maybe struggling with that. What would you say to them? Yeah, it comes in different flavors. 
uh, I really see that in the professions. So you see people who have been through uh, medical school and there are all these just awful uh, practices that really just amount to uh, strange ordeals imposed on students just because the previous generation did it where, you know, you look at residency and, and these doctors go through it and they don't get sleep and they work 120 hours. I mean, is this really the way to train doctors? Um, and then lawyers the same way where it's like three years of law school has nothing to do with what they practice as a lawyer. Can't they just take the bar exam? And then yet you, <laughs> so there are self-interested reasons why they want to limit the number of doctors and lawyers. And, and so they feel justified in, in keeping the system. But I think you're right. There's also this strange like Stockholm syndrome or something where once you've been captured by the system, you, you come to like it and you want to impose it on others. And, uh, and then when, it, when it comes to undergraduate education, uh, I think that uh, the debate then starts to become more about stuff along the lines of, well, university education shouldn't just be vocational school. It shouldn't be about training you for future employment. It should also be about critical thinking and uh, exploring the philosophy, arts and literature and so on. And, and, uh, and to that, I, I'm always a, a little bit perplexed because um, – you know, the, the, the assumption behind that statement is that is that universities are currently teaching the liberal arts. And that, that's something I would challenge is that uh, I, I don't think they are teaching an appreciation of, of art and beauty and and uh, and and so on. And, and I don't think they're teaching critical thinking. And, and there are some there's some research to show that. But anyway, that's that, that's the debate it takes. And it's like, oh, without time in university, how would I, you know, without pondering. Um, I don't know, having to read your, your, whatever books you read freshman year, you know, how would you understand the, the ultimate questions in life? And I'm just like, well, you know, you're not, the, you, you pretend as if those schools are teaching that right now, but they're not. I don't know how to argue with people about that. You're right. It's like, it's hard to convince people that, uh, that they wasted their time on something. <laughs> so especially when it has this symbolic importance in their lives. I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah, it's something I've been wrestling with recently, and uh, maybe we can juggle that again sometime in the future on another podcast episode. But uh, I'm not, I don't want to take any more of your time, Michael. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your time with us today. For sure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. We just went deep with Michael Gibson. Hope out there has a fantastic day. Hey, please hit subscribe if you've not already done so. And get excited for some of our forthcoming episodes. We have TrueFit CEO and founder Darren Grove talking about 20 years of running his business. We've got real estate queen Whitney Nicely coming on to talk about her unique investing strategy. And we've got Brendan Ike, the founder of JavaScript. He was the first one to write and come up with JavaScript and is now creating a new browser called Brave that is dedicated to winning back your attention from advertisers, cookies, and trackers across the internet and give you a better internet experience. It is going to be a fantastic couple weeks of interviews coming up. So I hope that you will stay tuned to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.